0: If we can actually start with really getting specific with kids about, well, what is the challenge or what is the excitement or what is the situation, we're really in a much better position to support them. And we're also, which we don't always see, is we're also modeling that for them. So they're able to start that reflective listening with others as well.
1: Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids Straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I'm really excited today to be joined by Rebecca Rowland, who is going to talk to us about the art of talking to children. And I'm really excited for the wisdom that she is going to share with us on this episode. I know it's going to be so helpful to all of you who are listening, both parents and educators and even professionals. Thank you for being here. Rebecca, do you want to start by letting us know who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. Thanks. And thanks for having me. So, yes, I'm a speech pathologist and also the mother of two children, ages five and ten. And I also teach educational assessment at Harvard, and I teach at Harvard Medical School as well. So I've been a clinician for many years, working with kids all the way from toddlers through young adults. And I really sort of toggle back and forth between my clinical life and my parenting life and my own work.
1: Yeah. It's interesting how it all sort of plays off of each other, right? And
0: <laughs> Exactly.
1: <laughs> we learn so much by doing, by being the parent and can really weave that into our work. I love the book that you have out now, The Art of Talking with Children, the subtitle, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. I find that those things are so important overall to the success of our kids. That confidence piece especially helps them to be able to take risks and to feel good about themselves so that they can do well.
0: For sure. Definitely. And I actually, in writing this book, it was really a journey to think about not only what was so important in children's thriving, and I think confidence is so important, but even kind of what can we do as parents and educators to support kids with those?
1: Yeah. And and looking at that creativity piece, I think is super valuable for neurodivergent kids because they often are more creative thinkers. They do things in a different way that isn't always linear, right? And Mm -hmm. so nurturing that creativity is really important.
0: Definitely, yes. And I think even nurturing it, for one, is so important, I think, every day. And especially for neurodivergent kids, I think helping them recognize their own creativity and their own gifts kind of on a daily basis is so important when they don't always get that feedback.
1: Right. Should we start with talking about maybe foundational principles of talking with children?
0: Sure, definitely. So I really, in my book, lay out uh, a few major principles with talking with children. I use the term rich talk, which is really about how do we jumpstart conversations with kids that are meaningful, but also fun and exciting for us. And one thing I've really focused on, especially recently, is the importance of reflective and active listening. Mm. Because I think so often we think so much about what we say, what words we use, but we don't always do so much with the back and forth of actually how does listening sound, both from ourselves as parents, but then also how do we help kids listen actively? And I think that's so important as well.
1: Yeah. And the language that we use really matters too when we're talking to our kids in that reflection of teaching them kindness, creativity, and confidence, right?
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: that, yeah. What we say to them is often the little voice in their head, and it's so super important. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about what is reflective listening and what is active listening?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, reflective listening is really that sense of kind of being a mirror for kids. You're actually helping them kind of hear the way they're processing things, making sure that they feel actually heard. Mm. So I'll go back a little bit to this rich talk idea. And I lay out kind of the ABCs, I call it, of rich talk. And I think that is equally true in terms of the listening. And the first is just is A stands for adaptive, meaning that we really are adapting to the situation with our child. So on a daily basis with their mood, the current situation, their context, but also longer term you know, with their temperament, with what has been working for them in the past. but really always thinking about adjusting to kind of move with the flow as they evolve. So that's the first, the A. And then B is a back and forth. So I think being reflective listening or active listeners, we really want to think about balancing talk and silence for both of us. So making sure that kids have kind of an equal or even sometimes greater chance to speak rather than having us be the ones who are coming, you know, with a lecture or with a point to make. And C is really being child-driven. So standing for this idea that we want to start with where our kids are coming from. That doesn't mean being permissive parents or, you know, letting kids do whatever, but really starting with what's either exciting to them or worrisome to them or on their minds, and recognizing that by doing so, we really are promoting their abilities to learn better because they'll be more motivated. They're more interested because they're already kind of, we're starting with their own starting points.
1: Yeah. We talk a lot about child-driven on this podcast and in the work that I do. It's so important because I think that goes back to your former point that it makes kids feel seen and heard and valued, right? And that buy-in that you're talking about is so crucial. But also, you know, the interest, especially kids with ADHD, where their brain really fires with interest, Mm -hmm. right? It makes things more doable. And so that's really, really valuable. I think a lot of parents get sort of tied up in knots at the thought of letting your kid guide. Mm -hmm. But like you said, we're providing boundaries and we're there to facilitate and to lead in some ways. But it's really important that we honor who they are and what they need. Definitely,
0: yeah. And I think that that is so important to sort of see kids authentically. And that does start with being child-driven in the sense of starting with their interests, with even what's on their mind and recognizing, yeah, some people have said, well, does that mean letting kids do whatever they want or have whatever they want? You know, and it really has very little to do with that. You know, you can still have a child not getting what they want, but just starting from like, well, what is it that they want to actually understanding that I think is so important. And we often- kind of move past that in the interest of, you know, moving forward with the conversation.
1: Yeah. What else do we need to know about adaptive and reflective listening?
0: So I, th- I would say one thing is really to think about, are we understanding what kids are really trying to tell us? And if not, what kind of questions or comments can we make in order to understand And recognizing that this kind of ability to, like, let's see if we can understand what this person really wants who's in front of us, you know, whatever the child wants in front of us, it really is a form of being able to empathize with them. Mm -hmm. So if we can actually understand, well, what is it that you, you know, that's really hard for you at this moment? You know, if your child is struggling with a learning situation, you know, what is it about reading? that? makes it feel terrible. You know, what is it about, you know, this social situation that's really hard for you? If we can actually start with really getting specific with kids about, well, what is the challenge or what is the excitement or what is, uh, you know, the situation, we're really in a much better position to support them. Yeah, And we're also, which we don't always see, is we're also modeling that for them. So they're able to start that reflective listening with others as well.
1: Yes, which makes, I think, their interactions with others so much more effective. Exactly. And you know, kids who are developmentally delayed in skills like these, it's really important that we are modeling that and that we're helping them to build those skills.
0: Definitely. And yeah, I think especially, so the skills obviously build as children grow, but I think recognizing that we're all on a spectrum in terms of, you know, our own strengths and our challenges, even as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being reflective even about that, you know, times when, we thought one thing about a person and we weren't exactly correct, you know, anything like that can really support kids in realizing that, yes, we're all growing in these areas. And so nobody's perfect, which I think is really important to hear.
1: Yes, it's so important. I think even more so for kids who have challenges, but yeah, I think we have to be imperfect for our kids so that they're okay with being imperfect too, you know, so they don't think that they're bad or broken.
0: Yeah, I think so often we just hear that, uh, you know, kids think, well, my parent or my teacher or whatever, they have all the answers. And mm-hmm. sometimes it can be feel scary, I think, especially talking with other parents, you know, to say to a child, oh, I don't have all the answers, or oh, I did this thing that I realized I shouldn't have done. But I think to be able to be open about that and vulnerable about that is just so important, especially for kids with challenges, because they can otherwise kind of beat themselves up against this impossible standard if they feel like, well, all these people around me have it together and I don't, you know, um, we can miss the fact that lots of other people and everyone is struggling with something. So I do think that modeling is really critical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You talked some about building resilience as well in the way that we talk to children. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that works, how we're helping them to become more resilient in the way that we interact and speak with them?
0: Definitely, yes. And I think that similarly, I want to start with this idea of modeling as well, because I think no matter how much we talk, if our actions suggest that, you know, we in our own lives don't want to approach challenges or really struggle with failing, they're going to see that as well. So I think, you know, before we even sort of give lectures about, oh, it's important to bounce back from challenges or anything like that. It's really critical that they see us working through our own challenges. That doesn't mean always succeeding at them. Uh, it really does also mean setting up things for ourselves and talking through times when, you know, this was hard, but I pushed through or or even times when, you know, I realized this wasn't a goal that I necessarily wanted to have. And so I think for children as well, to help them realize the boundary between you know, this is a goal that I want and I'm going to keep trying versus when is this starting to become counterproductive for me? When can I actually switch to another topic, to another goal or just think that, you know, this goal doesn't have to be set in stone. So I've seen a lot of kids who kind of get hung up on, you know, this idea of grit and, you know, feeling like, well, I set this goal for myself and I have to do it no matter what. Even if it becomes clear, even to them, that this isn't really a goal that they're ready for or something that, is kind of out of bounds for them for whatever reason. So I do think actually talking with them about noticing signs when, you know, they're doing something that's still pleasurable, even if they're not succeeding, versus is this something that has started to feel like a slog or started to feel like something that's, you know, often too challenging for them. And that really, you know, is different for every child and different at every stage. Mm -hmm. So keeping it open and kind of saying, well, maybe this is too challenging right now, but we can revisit it, you know, in a month or two months or something like that, that it may not feel the same way. So I think having that kind of evolving back and forth can really help kids with that.
1: Yeah, you say that Rich Talk recognizes that kids are more resilient, healthier, and more successful when they have at least one adult they're deeply connected to. I love that. I love that you call attention to that because connection with others is how our bodies feel settled and calm.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I think especially when kids are struggling to bounce back from something, if they have someone, they can speak their worries to or just talk it out with... Um, They are so much more likely to feel like, okay, I'm still okay, fundamentally. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just, you know, I might be struggling in this moment, Uh, but really help put Mm -hmm. things in perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you say that rich talk helps kids, parents, teachers have stronger relationships. Do you want to tell us a little more about that? How is that connection made?
0: Definitely, yeah. So I think this idea of rich talk, so when you're adaptive, when you're having this back and forth... And when you're child-driven, this really creates what I call a double promise. So meaning that there are kind of two things going on. And the first thing is that in the moment, you really are strengthening your relationships because you are being more responsive to kids. You are actually supporting this very intimate kind of back and forth where they feel heard, you feel more heard. And that really lets you enjoy yourselves and enjoy the children more in the moment. So rather than feeling as if you're missing each other, you know, you're arguing and you're not even on the same page, you're even able to get on the more, you know, more same page, be more in sync with a child. So that's kind of the first promise about in the moment. And then the second promise is really over time. The fact that these kind of interactions really do accumulate. So it might, you know, you're not going to build resiliency or Confidence or anything mm-hmm. like that in a moment or a conversation, obviously not. But um, the idea is that over time, as you build this foundation, and it's really a trusting and secure foundation, children are going to be developing these skills through that kind of back and forth. So you don't necessarily see that happening. But I think as you go you know, through the process, there's so much research and so much um, kind of evidence out there that these kind of interactions over time do build those skills too.
1: Yeah. And how does a stronger relationship with our child translate into other things, day-to-day activities, their confidence, their resilience? You know, it impacts a lot, right? Yes,
0: definitely. So yes, having that kind of stronger foundation really does allow kids to do so much more. So you can think about it almost as if they have this solid base, um, really thinking about attachment and so on, so that they're able to go out, for example, and take more risks than they might have otherwise, because they know that, well, when I come back, even if it didn't work out, I have this person who loves me unconditionally, who understands me, who's able to process this with me, and so it doesn't have to feel so scary. So they can start to take these kind of challenges on that they might not have done before, and even be encouraged to try things they haven't thought of, in part because they know they have the solid base. Same goes for a lot of these other relationships. So if you can establish a really empathetic relationship with a child, show that you understand, you know, for example, learning differences, what they're going through, how something might be impacting them, um, they're able to translate that not only to their own self-talk in terms of how they're thinking about themselves, But even to the talk they're having with peers, you know, with other friends who might be having other challenges, they're able to bring a more empathetic perspective to them. So it's almost as if you're teaching these skills in the moment on a one-on-one relationship, but then they're actually able to bring them out into the world. And I think that's what's so powerful about Rich Talk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Can you give us an example of how a parent can show empathy to a child? What would they say?
0: Yeah, so um, for example... I would say, let's say a child is feeling like they're having trouble reading, for example. And so they're saying, you know, I I hate reading. It's so boring. You know, I'm not smart. Nobody likes me. This kind of like catastrophizing language. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I would want to be able to do is to really first sit and... Be specific. So actually, a lot of times we want to push those feelings away, you know, and we say kind of the opposite, you know, like, oh, no, you're very smart. Or, oh, your reading is fine or something like that. But in doing so, we often do kind of invalidate that feeling, which may be for them a really real feeling, you know, that this is not going well, or I'm having a lot of trouble. So to be able to actually validate the fact that, okay, this does feel really hard for you, you know, and then let's, Let's sit together and understand why and then what we can do about it. So, we think about empathy not just as feeling what another person's feeling, but there's actually another kind of empathy called compassionate empathy and taking compassionate action. Meaning that once we feel what another person's feeling, we can help work with them to think about, well, what action can we take as a result? And so, actually, thinking with a child okay, this part is hard for you. Let's actually get a handle on this. You know, rather, let's be specific. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you can't do this, but let's just actually see kind of in an objective way. Well, what, let's explore together. What is it that's difficult? And then let's see, well, what is also true? So for example, okay, this may be really hard for you to read these words, but what about reading is still going well for you? You know, and to recognize that there's always a spectrum even within things that are hard. Mm-hmm. So for example, like, well, maybe you really love storytelling. So if someone tells you the story, you can really understand well what's happening, or you love to write about you know what you read. So you like to explore it, you know, in a different way. And then to think about well, what action can you take as a result? Like this is difficult. So rather than just sit and say, Well, it's difficult, I feel bad about myself, you know, how can we think together or even work with a teacher? about strategies to actually improve what's difficult for you. So I think that the child then sees you're on the journey with them. So you recognize that, okay, this does feel hard. Even whether you're good or bad about, you know, at it, it still feels difficult. So what can we do to help you feel better about it and for it to go better?
1: That really sets up a collaborative relationship, Mm -hmm. that feeling, that sense of value. Again, you know, a lot of these things just make kids feel better about themselves and valued which is really powerful stuff.
0: Definitely, yes. And I think too, to recognize that my parent or my caregiver, whoever, they understand that I feel this is hard. I think that is so powerful because oftentimes kids do feel as though, well, I'm all alone in this. I'm struggling and no one really sees how hard it is. And I think to be able to sit and see that with a child is just so powerful in itself.
1: And we can be so dismissive as parents. (laughs) You know, we can really take our own feelings about what's happening and put that into the mix in a way that makes our kids feel misunderstood and like we don't get it. And I think that's really crucial when we're talking about a neurodivergent population. These kids get those messages so often, and we have to work so hard to really counteract that, to balance that and say, okay, you know, you're not acting like a baby, which I think is what would be a really instinctual maybe response mm-hmm. if a child seems to be, you know, having bigger emotions than maybe their age would call for. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember that we're talking about developmentally delayed kids. Yeah. And so, you know, if we say, oh, you're acting like a baby, you just need to get over it versus, wow, I see how hard this is for you. What can we do? You know, to- totally different tones, two totally different ways. One's going to make a kid feel worse and one's going to make a kid feel better, right?
0: Definitely. Yes. And I think sometimes it can really be helpful too, just to put ourselves in their mindset to say, for example, you know, well, school to them is, is like their world. It's like if we were at work and someone said to us, like, why can't you do this thing? You know, and they kept saying to us, why can't you do this thing? You know, we would feel really bad or we could feel really bad about that. And so mm-hmm. to recognize that for them, this could feel like a really big deal, even if for us, oh, why does it matter? You know, oh, we'll just get over it or something like that. And so I do think that's so important to kind of really think through how this is feeling to them.
1: Yeah. The other piece of this too that we should talk about is the fact that you can't have these really meaningful conversations, the active listening, the reflective listening, back and forth when kids are already triggered and they're feeling really out of whack. Mm -hmm. So if they're really dysregulated, it's not the time because their thinking brain is offline and we can't problem solve. And it's a conversation that I've had with my own son when he was younger, pretty frequently, (laughs) you know, your thinking brain is offline. I want to help you solve this problem, but we just can't do it right now until we're calmer. Mm -hmm. So I just want to bring that to the forefront too, that, you know, what you're talking about in these conversations and especially having any back and forth is really when kids haven't sort of gone to this place where they're flooded their emotional brain, survival brain, and their thinking brain is offline. We have to wait if we've gotten to that point.
0: Definitely. Yes. And I think that's such a great point. And I've seen that also because so many parents and educators have asked me, you know, well, how can you have these conversations when a child is having a tantrum? You know, how can, and I was like, well, you just, you can't, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, you can do other things to support them from, you know, having a tantrum or to help them in a tantrum. But rich talk and really reflective thinking like this is not going to happen in the moment of a tantrum. And I think we can get so frustrated whether our child is having an actual tantrum or just, you know, really emotionally dysregulated. If we do think you know, well, why can't I make this conversation happen? Why can't they talk it out? Because they really can't talk it out in that moment. Uh, and I think it's also the same goes for, you know, if they are dysregulated for other reasons. I know, you know, when my son gets really exhausted and overexcited or something like that, it's similar in the sense that it's really hard to then say, okay, well, let's sit and have a very reflective conversation. It's often that something else needs to happen first.
1: Yeah. I was the great rationalizer (laughs) with my own son, and I never could understand for the longest time until I understood the way his brain was working, why it never worked. Mm -hmm, Why (laughs) why couldn't I just talk him out of (laughs) Mm -hmm. it? Why couldn't I just, you know, calm him down and make him see my way, right? right? (laughs) Which is really what that's doing. Mm -hmm. So really understanding that Their biology is playing a role in their availability to really have these type of conversations and rich talk is valuable, especially, I think, for parents of neurodivergent kids, because a lot of times our kids are more triggered, they're more sensitive, their nervous systems um, are activated more easily. So it's really important to remember that. I have so many parents who say, well, you know, I tried empathy, it doesn't work. I tried giving him a regulation strategy. I tried telling him to breathe. Mm -hmm. And it's always, it was at the wrong time, right? Like it's a good strategy, but it also has to be at the right time or it's not effective.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I've often worked with parents where we can do some of the teaching of strategies in the calmer times and then hoping that, in the times that are less calm, you know, there's some ability maybe to apply them, but there's definitely not, yeah, not the same sense of we can't start teaching new things, um, when a child is at that point for sure.
1: Yeah. And they just can't process it. Like even when I would try to rationalize, he wasn't hearing me. All I was Mm -hmm. doing was making more and more and more overwhelmed really.
0: Yeah. I just, it's funny because you think about kids, um, Hearing you talk when they're dysregulated, it really does often seem kind of like it's just noise to them. So it's almost like the more words Mm -hmm. seem like more noise. So yeah, I think that's why it's so important to kind of slow things down when kids are in that point.
1: Yeah, for sure. I want to make sure that we talk just a little bit about nurturing kindness as well. This is something that I find super important in the world today. And I want to talk a little bit about your insights or strategies on helping to build that within our kids.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I do think that is so critical today and that we don't always think about it as in development. So we often talk about kids and kind of labeling them as like, oh, my child is so, you know, has such an easy time being kind to others or vice versa. My child, you know, really struggles to be kind But we don't always think about it in in terms of our conversations and actually the back and forth of really helping kids reflect on concrete times. So rather than lecturing them, really starting with things, whether or not we noticed something that they did kind of without being asked that was really kind and commenting on that, or really talking through times when they're struggling with a friend situation, with, you know, a teacher situation or something in sports where someone is being unkind And talk through, you know, what actually is going on and what can be done in that situation. And I talk about what I call storytelling conversations, which is kind of a way of thinking through and empathizing when someone hasn't been kind. Mm. And really the way it works is just actually thinking through with kids. Say, you know, you see someone at the grocery store who was really snide or kind of made some negative comment and you didn't even know them. Really kind of thinking through with kids, well, what are all the reasons that this person could have said that unkind thing, or could have been unkind. And helping kids actually expand their reasoning behind just, oh, they're a quote unquote, mean person. you know, well what what could have happened in their life today, or in general, what could they be going through to have said something like that? And you know to really feel as though we can expand our stories of people beyond just labeling them from one incident. So thinking through kind of empathetically what their situations might be can be so important in helping kids get away from kind of black and white thinking of like nice people or nice kids and the mean kids.
1: Yeah. And that's such a common thing in our neurodivergent population Mm -hmm. is black and white thinking. (laughs) Yes. Being very, very literal, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be so tough sometimes. I love that you come at it in that way to help really break that sort of barrier down, which is really amazing. The last thing that we wanted to be sure that we touch on is strategies to help kids embrace learning differences.
0: Definitely. So yes, I think um, for me, that's one of the critical things. And I think there's a whole chapter in my book about openness to difference. And I really emphasize this idea that it goes far beyond saying I'm going to tolerate people who are different from me and really goes to the sense of, well, how can we actually see difference as a celebration, as something we can learn from, and as a positive. So something where we actually take children through that process of, let's not just say, okay, well, I'm okay with the fact that these people are different from me. And, you know, that's better than being hateful, but it's far better if we can actually say, well, this is actually a positive thing in our family, in our classroom, in our society, that we have these differences. So starting from that point, I think, is so important to help kids see that, you know, we don't want everyone to be the same. So it's actually a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the starting point, I think. And I really talk about actually seeing that we're all different from everyone else in some ways. So it's a much better, you know, to recognize kind of our own differences rather than to say, okay, well, he is like this and I'm, I'm typical and she or he is, Not typical, you know. There's we're all on a spectrum of something somewhere, so I think to recognize that as well is really important.
1: Yeah, it's so important, and it makes our kids feel like they have a place, you know, that they belong Mm -hmm. because everybody has something different, and we should embrace it and celebrate it. I love that. So I think that we are at a point at the end where it's time to talk about taking action. What action? can parents take to start out on this path of adopting rich talk with their children, something that they can go from listening to this episode and then taking some quick action?
0: Yes, definitely. So I think um, the first thing I would suggest starting with is to recognize this doesn't have to be any kind of major shift in your communication. So you can start with something like just taking five or 10 minutes a couple times a day to really sit with your child or children and check in with them. So start by just, sometimes I even suggest starting with just some silence when you're doing something kind of meditative or quiet, like cooking or, Mm. you know, mowing the lawn together or taking a walk and seeing what comes up from your child. So rather than starting with, you know, lots of probing questions or things like that, just allowing there to be a bit of silence while you're doing that and seeing what your child has to say. And then actually following the train of that thought. So actually putting aside for just five or ten minutes an agenda or some kind of point you want to make or somewhere you want to get. And just really following whatever it is that's on their mind and thinking about that balance of talk and silence. So actually contributing something, but then waiting and seeing, well, what are they going to say to that? And what are you going to say to that? Um, And just trying that process for a few minutes, you might find that your child is pretty quiet, which is totally fine. Or you might find that your child talks a lot. And whichever way it is, starting that as a practice is something that can really help kids feel heard, even if it's just for small portions of the day. And that can be really a great foundation for this um, more generally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's very doable. Mm -hmm. You know, this is stuff that you can integrate into your day-to-day life. We're not asking you to take a bunch of time out and find time Mm -hmm. to do this. And, you know, it's something that really can just be part of what you're already doing.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So we're at the end of our time together. I want to let everyone know who's listening that they can find the show notes for this episode at Mm parentingadhdandautism.com slash 185 for episode 185. There, we will have a link to Rebecca's book, The Art of Talking to Children, as well as her website and social media. And I definitely encourage you to check those things out and to learn more from her expertise. And I know it'll benefit you and your child. Thanks again, Rebecca, so much for being here and sharing some of your wisdom and, and helping the parents out there who are listening.
0: Definitely. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at ParentingADHDandAutism.com and and at theBehaviorRevolution.com.